right. Well, Joshua Coran, thank you for uh, joining us in the 30. Pleasure to be here. If you could, um, I guess, give us uh, like a little bit of a background on yourself, a little bit of your history. Sure. Well, I consider myself a little bit of a digital dinosaur <laughs> that I was on the internet back when it was the ARPANET. And so wow. I'm fortunate to uh, have seen it grow up from ground zero here in Silicon Valley and been helping marketers and publishers match content to users through uh, now two decade plus long career. Wow, that goes way, way, way back for sure. Yeah, I remember, I remember the days of like well and bulletin boards and all that kind of stuff. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so uh, we've, we, we really do appreciate you coming on because I think that, you know, being able to, um, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show um, and that I talk a lot on the internet about generally is the effects that um, Google and Facebook's advertising kind of practices and, and their control over the advertising market have had on the, on the, the, the journalism industry. Um, and, you know, I think that, the, that we in the industry certainly look at it and say, well, you know, we've had ever increasing numbers of readers and page views, and we continue to see decreases every month in the amount of money we're making off of our advertisements and something fishy is going on. But one of the things about this discussion in general that I found is, is that it is a very complicated thing, at least to an outsider, um, and that it's a bit of a, a, a black box how you know, online internet, uh, online advertising works, right? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you can help uh, describe this for um, a functional chimpanzee like myself. Uh, so <laughs> right. what, what is the internet? Uh, what, is the, what is online advertising? Sure, I'll try to uh, shed some light inside that black box. I don't think it's as scary as many people may believe uh, without having already peered inside. So I, I found one of the easiest ways to understand it is to actually kind of walk through the quick history of how an ad shows up on a publisher website and kind of the evolution of online advertising and digital advertising and programmatic advertising uh, it follows a, a course that uh, aligns to the evolution of computer technology, but it's really also, I think, uh, illustrative of how we're making advertising work better. And we can then uh, you know, pivot across to some of the privacy concerns that I know many people rightly have. So if we look at the original way that ads showed up on publisher pages, a marketer or their advertising agency would call up on the phone or meet in person with the publisher salesperson and try to place their ad content in the context that was relevant to the product they were selling. So if you were Nike trying to sell some shoes, maybe you wanna be on some sports context pages. Now, the challenge that that had for both sides was time. That was a very manual process, and there was a limited number of people both sides could talk to. The sellers, the publisher sales people could only you know, meet or talk to so many different buyers. And similarly, the marketers or their agencies could only call so many sellers. So what ended up happening, happening especially with the you know, amazing growth of the internet, is that there were many pages far more what we call inventory, far more slots uh, that could show an ad that were not sold. So they were unsold, they're often called remnant. 
So what happened is we, we needed a marketplace to help make this more efficient. And so the very first innovation that happened was the rise of what were called ad networks. And they began to aggregate up the supply. So publishers could work with an ad network or multiple ad networks. And their inventory could now be made available to multiple buyers. So this, this had the, uh, I guess, the, the benefit to the publishers of quasi-outsourcing their sales team or augmenting their sales team now with another company sales team. So that increased the number of ads that could show up inside the publisher inventory. From the buy side, from the marketer side, it also opened up more inventory. So as we improved the liquidity, right, the marketers were now able to put ads on more publisher properties and the publishers were able to collect ads from more marketers through the use of these ad networks. Now, there, there was also a challenge with the ad networks. These, even though they were market makers trying to connect buyers and sellers, there was a limit to how many different ad networks the sellers, the publishers could work with. And this was a, a browser limit in that what's happening behind the scenes when you visit a publisher page is it's making a call, making a request to a remote server. And there was only so many calls a browser can make before a human will notice that there's latency or that there's a lag in the publisher page rendering content. So because of that time limit, right, there was only so many different calls to so many other ad networks you could make to help increase the fill rate or increase the number of ads that were showing up on publisher pages. And this is the, the innovation that kind of addressed this uh, was what we now call programmatic advertising, which relies on real-time bidding or auctions to match up the, the demand with the supply. But what happens behind the scenes is instead of the browser client contacting each server, it contacts one server. And then that server contacts lots of other servers. And since it can now uh, scale linearly, as there are more different buyer servers to contact, it can talk to thousands as opposed to maybe only three. And again, this increases the demand for the publisher's inventory and simultaneously increases the supply that buyers have uh, are able to show ads in. That's all happening while before the the person looking at their at their browser even realizes it's happening. So that that, that effectively takes care of that problem. It happens in less than a blink of an eye. It's it's happening in roughly 100 to 150 milliseconds. All the processes. <laughs> Okay. Wow. All right. That's very fast. <laughs> no, it's incredibly fast and, and happening, you know, billions of times a second. So any given server uh, company that I mentioned in this, in this chain may be processing millions of events every second. And there's thousands of them, hence the billions. So that's, so this was all kind of done a bit organically, right? Like the government didn't step in and say, okay, we're going to create this system, for instance, right? No, each step along the path was 
trying to solve a problem. So the original problem for digital publishers was how to make money. And advertising was a clear uh, you know, example that they got from newspapers and magazines. Uh, but then when they ran into this challenge of, I've got more inventory than I have salespeople. So I need some help. And that's why we then brought in market makers that would try to allow one buyer to contact multiple different publishers and allow one seller to access lots of different marketers' uh, demand, which is similar to how the financial markets work. Mm -hmm. And then the next step, of course, was just automating that further to try to make it more efficient and faster. And that's where we went from client browser contacting every seller's, or sorry, every buyer's server to this um, publisher server contacting the buyer's servers and all of that happening uh, uh, simultaneously as opposed to sequentially. So I guess this leads me to my next question, which I guess is um, at some point, I imagine some very smart people at Facebook and at Google and places like that saw that the more involvement that they had in all of the different sort of parts of this system, the, the more money they can make, right? Well, each part of the system generates value and generates margin. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you control more parts of that supply chain, you're able to uh, keep more of the margin being generated by each of these hops. So from the publisher ad server, uh, DoubleClick was one of the main ones that was acquired by Google, right, to the uh, buy side. Uh, decisioning systems that are called demand side platforms or DSPs. But in essence, they're just the interface a marketer or their agency might use Mm -hmm. try to place their ads across all these different publishers. Uh, Google acquired one of those. Uh, The Trade Desk is a public company that's done quite well in the same marketplace. Um, But each of these steps along the way is trying to solve a separate problem. One from the publisher side of I need to find demand to fill my inventory. One from the buy side, I need to find the right audience that will engage with my content, my service or my product. So it sounds like it's it's inherently, well, not inherently, I guess, but um, um, there's nothing necessarily um, in, in terms of how this is, the system is set up um, on a very sort of like basic kind of theoretical level, at least like there's no, there's no bias against one side or the other on this, that it is sort of like a, just a, the, the bias is what the market is, is willing to, to withstand, right? There's, it's not, right. it's not set up to, to favor anybody in particular. Automatically. No, I, I, correct. It, 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 it doesn't, um, it, as I've described this, this, you know, market making function with this, these parties in the middle that are connecting buyers and sellers it, it operates like the financial markets where you may not know the identity of the person who previously owned the stocks you just acquired, mm-hmm. right? But you work through a broker interface. So the analogy in ads would be this, this demand side platform interface to place an order to acquire some stocks, or in this case, some ad space. And that order goes through the chain and arrives at the person who currently owns that stock, or in our case, the ad space, the publisher. And they are conducting an auction. They're trying to say, who's going to pay me the most to show an ad into this slot on the page? 
And whoever is willing to pay the most is what ends up uh, rendering in that slot. Uh, but it, to your original question, there, there's no bias in that network. There are economies of scale, which are part of the challenge we've recently seen, where the more control you have, the more of these pieces in that chain you control, you may be able to play by different sets of rules. So previously, when DoubleClick was acquired by Google, they favored their own real-time bidding platform, their demand-side platform, over the competitive marketplace. It got what's called first look or first bite at the apple. It was able to serve into the space faster than others. And so if everyone else you know, uh, responded back but had a bid that was equal, then Google could still favor its filling of that ad space. The publisher didn't lose out, but it did give Google an unfair advantage. Interesting. Okay. You say that, is that still going on? I believe they did roll that back last year, mm -hmm. uh, but there are other challenges afoot where they are suggesting that these uh, independent publishers must not operate by the same rules that a vertically integrated publisher or a publisher that controls not only the content it produces, but the ad tech technology to monetize that content. Mm -hmm. So we've seen with the Chrome browser as an example, where they're trying to make a distinction between the first and third party cookies. Right. The cookie is just a file that stores an ID that's used as part of this transaction chain that I described. The uh, distinction between a first and third party is whether the entity creating and reading that file is the same one as what shows up in the browser URL bar. So when you visit google.com or cnn.com, Right, each of those is a first party to what you're seeing that uh, browser URL bar. The other companies that may be helping to monetize that inventory are considered third parties. Okay. Now, what's going on is the browser is trying to make a distinction that I don't think is actually a necessary or even uh, a important one. They're trying to say that an independent publisher, and we'll pick on a large one like CNN, uh, is should be at a disadvantage because the consumer should control the should control the supply chain of CNN. They should have to grant permissions to which companies CNN can work with. However, for the same types of services, personalized content or ad matching content, they should not have that same control when they visit a publisher that also operates its own ad technology stack. Like Chrome, for instance, or Google. Correct. Mm -hmm. and, and what is the, what is the functional, the, the real world sort of effect of, of something like that? Well, it, as I mentioned, there, the economies of scale drive the prices that publishers earn. So if we have an auction and there are only two people bidding, 
right? That's not going to drive the price as if you had 2,000 people bidding. <laughs> right. And so if we're going to fragment which companies get to participate in the auction, you end up with a much sparser auction and oftentimes not necessarily the highest price that that publisher would otherwise earn for the exact same slot on their page. Do you think that this is, because um, I mean, this is one of the big questions that I had when I got laid off, for instance, last year. Um, and I think over the last year, a lot of people have had about, about this is, you know, um, prior, prior to the coronavirus um, crisis that we've been having, which has sort of necessarily reduced just the number of advertisements in general. But before that, you know, the economy was doing really well. It seemed like online advertising seemed to be doing pretty well. Um, we were all having more and more people read our work and, and be on our pages. But, but the amount of revenues we were getting was just not keeping up anymore. So, you know, I, I, of course, understand that the newspaper industry has been particularly hard hit, not just uh, digitally, but uh, even more so in their print outlets. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of that is reliant on the contextual targeting that brands want to be associated with. So if you're a travel company, you may not want your ads associated with a news story about an airline crash. Right. That seems to be uh, negative sentiment or, you know, a, a story that may not make people as interested in engaging with your travel service. So there, there's a clear understanding why a marketer might want to not sponsor that content with the ad. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of news, you know, does contain negative sentiment content because it's important war and politics and, and many of the other events that newspapers are covering for us are incredibly important. But that's unfortunately, you know, oftentimes content that is not as commercially relevant to the marketer and they have contextual targeting tools to say, I want my travel ads associated or not associated with these types of stories. Mm -hmm. so that may be why, as we've seen a lot of political news and now a lot of uh, virus news, the page views go up, but the monetization of those pages comes down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's been a, a bit of a, a two-part two thing going on there that like yeah, people don't necessarily want to have their, their advertisements connected to this stuff, but also people just doesn't see more advertising as much right now, certainly. Well, yeah, so the, the advertising, uh, there was an IV study released two weeks ago that said advertisers had pulled back a lot of their budgets for the year relative to what they had planned in January. Mm -hmm. So across every ad format and every device, they had you know, pulled back approximately one third. And so if there's less demand for the same supply with a normal economic model, you'd expect prices to fall. There's less competition. Uh, and, you know, sure enough, we did see the price of advertising a slot on the page decline. Fortunately, not as much as the 30% reduction in how much people are willing to spend. But what matters to publishers and especially news publishers is not just how much per ad slot, but the total revenue. So right. the ad slot times the total page views. And we, we talked about one reason why 
maybe with the increase in page views related to both politics and the coronavirus, the revenues have not linearly kept up. But then the pullback of total spend into the marketplace is another reason why revenues would be declining uh, over the last few weeks. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, this also raises for me and something that, that you and I have, have talked a little bit about that I, I really wanted to, to, to get into with you um, some, some is that um, I think that we, um, I've, I've definitely argued that, that um, I feel like uh, I don't trust very much people like companies like Facebook and Google and want to certainly see some kind of government action taken to look at what's happening inside those companies with this stuff. But you raised an interesting point when we were talking the other day, which is the this broader question of whether of of so, social almost social good, I guess, or or taking into into consideration and in how these things work, um, almost something beyond simple money issues. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I you know as I mentioned earlier, the the current focus around regulation oftentimes focuses on this first or third party definition, which I don't think accurately describes a consumer's perception. I don't think that consumers automatically understand all the data collection and processing of a large publisher they visit, but somehow forget about all that processing when they go to a, an independent publisher who has to rely on a network of partners Mm -hmm. to offer a similar service. So this vertical integration or first partiness, in my mind, should not be a deciding factor as to whether or not a consumer is uh, okay with the data collection and processing. Now, you know, you, you find on the opposite end of the spectrum that there's some people calling for the breakup of all these large companies. And I, I personally don't think that that's... Um, the right response. So I think there are, as I mentioned, these economies of scale. The more data you collect, the better your statistics can be, the better the matching of content to user interests. Whether that content is news stories or that content is advertising, I think it has a benefit not only to consumers, but also to marketers. If they're getting more value, they will be able to pay publishers more money. And that funds the free access that I think is important for the open web. So I'm you know, very much in favor of ensuring that the marketers are able to measure the value they get and that the changes that are being proposed don't reduce the value they get. Because if it did, of course, they'll pay publishers less and we're into a death spiral. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other topics you and I talked about was this notion in the states around common carriers. So that the common carrier concept in the United States uh, is often applied for communication and transportation networks. And what, is, what does common carrier mean in its most basic form? So it, it basically means that if you're designated a common carrier, you owe a heightened duty of care to avoid harm to those who are using your service. Now, the, the reason why we want to have these standards uh, is that it makes the communication or the commerce more efficient. And there's a lot of efficiencies 
with having a consistent international highway system mm-hmm. or telecom providers that can interconnect with one another. So I, you and I can talk even if we're using a different telecommunication provider service. And I think similarly with the internet service providers, right? We want there to be one web and we want people to be able to access it from the browser of their choice and from the internet service provider of their choice. So one of the, you know, the, the, the proposal to break up companies into smaller fragmented units, I'm not sure that that's gonna actually help us because what it would end up doing is make the value to consumers worse as the statistics get less input data and the value to marketers worse, so they end up paying companies less. And of course, if I'm gonna discount publishers uh, by some percentage, the ones that are already struggling are gonna be disproportionately impacted versus those that are already making billions of profit. So that, that's why I'm not uh, sure that's the uh, right approach. But one, one of the ideas that I've seen floated is to say that somehow the social data that we're all generating by interacting with content might be a new notion of a common carrier of data. So just like we have these common carriers of internet traffic and how we have architected our roads and our telecommunication networks to be able to provide the seamless connectivity, it might help competition and consumers and marketers and the publishers they fund through advertising to have more open access to data. So instead of restricting the data or breaking up companies into smaller entities, we may wanna look at the opposite proposal of how can we ensure data is made more freely accessible, lower the barriers of entry, and by doing so, ideally improve the innovation that we've all you know, found to provide the internet we enjoy. Well, I do think this it is interesting. I think is it. I think as you were and going back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about this this sort of weird distinctions now being made between first party and third party cookies. It's a distinction that I, I to me at least feels functionally um, non-existent. Right? I mean, there's this. Well, we're going to make it so that third parties can't um, don't get the same advantages as the main sort of, you know, your, your, your Chrome browser or whatever, and that then advantages Google, for instance. Um, and then a lot of those arguments have been made around the notions about privacy and about the, the right of consumers to control their, their data. Um, but someone is still getting it, right? So it's not like there's this, it, it, by getting rid of third-party cookies or the ability of independent publishers or, 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 or marketers or whatever to be able to do these things doesn't seem to have a a functional effect on, on, you know, I guess on the consumer really in the end, right? Someone is still getting that data and they can still use it for whatever they want and sell it to whoever they want. So the idea that it's somehow better to do that doesn't, doesn't, it's never really made a lot of sense to me, I guess. And, and to me, uh, either I agree. It, it, if we look at, you know, analogies to either civil law or criminal law, we, we talk about bad activities not about the identity of the malfeasant or the bad actor. Mm-hmm. So this whole notion of if you're my friend and, and somehow harm me, it's okay. Yeah. If you're a stranger and harm me, then obviously 
that somehow that harm is worse. The harm is is not defined by the relationship. The harm is defined by the activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. That's a very very good way of putting it. What do you make of of um, of what are some of the steps, I guess, that can be taken? Do you think there are some any short-term and long-term solutions that can be taken that can help industries like the, the news industry deal with this situation? Absolutely. So I, I think the first one is, is something like this, where, where I think more transparency and more education around how the Internet operates and how consumers are able to get free access to content is the very first step. The more people who understand what is happening, how it happens, I think the better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, secondly, trying to ensure that we're asking the right questions associated with what are we what are we trying to prevent against? What are these harms? And how are our you know changes to the industry or the technology going to address those harms and not make those harms worse or just change which actors are perpetrating them. Mm-hmm. I think that would be another useful um, step. And I, I've published some criteria that I think that uh, we might be able to look at where both large companies and small companies, consumers and uh, folks inside the ecosystem might all agree to some fundamental principles that we could balance some of these changes against. So and they're, you know, they're plain English principles. They're, it's a initial list. It's not exhaustive, but things like, you know, we all believe that free market economies rely on competition. So is the change going to increase or decrease competition? Right? Or ad funding enables consumers to access publisher content that they'd otherwise have to pay directly for. So a subscription service limits which people around the world will gain access. Mm-hmm. So is this change going to increase readership or limit it, right? It, some of these, these simple principles, I think, if we could highlight those and engage what we want to do versus those principles, I think we might move the conversation forward. I think another important point related to education is a, a confusion that many people have around the term identity. You mentioned privacy a while back. And I'm a privacy advocate. I believe consumers do have rights to privacy. And I think the challenge, at least in English, is when we're talking about IDs, we tend to conflate two different meanings. Mm -hmm. One is my personal identity, the identity that I walk around with in the real world, People can proactively call me on the phone or send me an email or knock on my door or send me a letter to my home address. All of those are my real world identity. Separate from that is another meaning of ID, which is a digital ID. And marketers do not need to know my first name to show me an ad. That's not why I'm receiving the ads I see. And so I think if we separate out the IDs that are required to support publishers and the marketers that fund them with just having what in the technical jargon is called a pseudonymous ID or de-identified ID, but in plain English is just a random string of letters and numbers, 
I, that's all that's required by the marketer to measure the effectiveness of their media spend and hence give the publishers the value that they're receiving for showing all these ads. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I have friends that I talk to about this that are, you know, just um, that are not involved in, in um, either the news or in really like online uh, commerce very much at all. Um, and it's interesting to talk to them because I think everybody assumes that, that the, the data that is being collected on them is so personal that they know specifically who you are. Um, and that, and that, and that the, the collectors of the data and the marketers that are using it know your name, right? And they know, um, uh, uh, know who you are. And that creates, that scares, I think, a certain, a certain, certainly a certain class of people. And maybe it's a, like a generational thing of, you know, they look at that and they say, well, I don't want people to know um, what kind of porn I look at, right? Um, they don't care so much about this sort of anonymous avatar, basically, that is that is being used by the marketers um, who collect that data. They care that could they assume that that that, that 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 avatar is in fact directly connected to themselves. Right, and I think that you know if we can educate people about the distinction of these two different types of identifiers. And then ensure that consumers truly have notice and choice mm -hmm. of joining their digital activity to their real world identity. Then we may be able to help address those concerns. But right now, the conversation seems to focus on if the technology could ever be used to do harm, then it must be bad technology. Right. And I can't actually think of a technology, even something as simple as a rock can be used to do harm. But it's the activity that's the harm, not the technology of the rock, or in our case, of a pseudonymous ID. So could I use pseudonymous IDs and join them to your identity without your consent and embarrass you because you're you know, viewing content that perhaps you don't want your friends to know about? That would be a harmful use of technology, but that's why we have rules that define what is okay uses and what are harmful uses, but it's the use of the technology, not the technology in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important distinction to make. I, you know, like I've, I have this conversation with, with other friends of mine and who are very much concerned about their privacy and like, you know, they say, you know, they look at me, they're like, I can't believe you of all people are okay with this idea of advertising people collecting data. And I said, well, first of all, it's kind of too late anyway. The cat's out of the bag. It exists. It's happening. So there's that. But also, you know, it doesn't seem to me that it's it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, it, it's, it's a, you know, morally, I guess, kind of a neutral thing, if it's particularly if it's operated in a way that, like, does protect you from that. I mean, and I think that, that the technology itself, like you say, is not um, – inherently uh, evil. Correct. And, and that's, you know, an analogy I often look to is the uh, cameras on highways that, you know, when they show aggregate uh, speed of how fast people are driving, I get to, you know, look at that and choose to either leave later in my commute or take an alternate route. So it's, there's a public good by all this data being collected by individual cars driving down the road. 
If that same camera, though, was connected to my identity and I received a speeding ticket because that camera saw me speeding, right? Now, all of a sudden, I'm less happy that the cameras exist. Right. The camera itself did not change. It was the use of the camera and connecting the activity it observed to my real-world identity without my consent. That was the operating distinction between the good use of the camera, from my perspective, and the use that I did not like. And that's where I think for the technologies we've been discussing, we should be focusing on the use and the harm and consumer notice and choice around those uses, not whether the camera was manufactured by you know one company or a different company. I think that's a hugely important point. I really do. Because I do think that like also that has that by conflating them, um, we are automatically favoring, I think, this idea that like this the the first party should have the ability to weigh it in their favor, essentially. And I don't and to me, I don't see how that is any way better or um or necessarily worse, honestly, than than having the like, like with third-party cookies and things like that, the ability of other companies to be able to do the same thing. I think it, and if anything, I just generally my, my normal skepticism of humans and corporations makes me feel like having it all in the hands of a small group of people generally makes me very uneasy. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the more people who are involved, I generally feel like that, that ensures that there's a certain level of protection for the rest of us. Well, it at least, at least gives more consumers more choice. Right. Right. If there is a competitive marketplace, you get to choose which companies you work with. And if you don't like the activities that some are doing, you have the choice of working with other companies that might be doing something else. So in search, as an example, right, there's the DuckDuckGo search engine, which promises not to record which searches you do over time and build up profiles but otherwise tries to give you a similar experience that you might get from a Bing or a Google search. So that's an example where if consumers are concerned about that activity, they have an option. Well, so normally I ask people to give advice to journalists coming into the industry, but since you are um, not a a journalist, um, I will do what every good journalist does at the end of of an interview. And I will ask you, what have I not asked you? Um, that, that you think is important to, to, that needs to be out there? Well, that's a great question. And uh, we have covered quite a bit. I'd say that, you know, the one, um, the one area that I'm, I, I, I hate to turn the tables, but the one area that I, I'm personally questioning of journalism, which I love, is why the concepts that we've discussed today are not being uh, presented that right now, the changes that have been proposed to eliminate support for third-party cookies would impact billions of consumers around the world. That, that seems like a pretty big change to the internet we've all enjoyed. And yet the stories that I see don't highlight much of what we've covered today in terms of the difference between identity and a digital ID the difference between the use of technology and the technology itself, the difference or lack thereof between first parties and third parties, or that by having rules that only favor first parties, you are by definition trying to have fewer larger companies at the expense of 
smaller, more companies. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm curious why those topics are not um, being discussed, given this huge worldwide impact. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will say this, that I think uh, that's actually, I think, a, a very awesome and very important question. And I think that there's a lot, lot there. I think that there are, for me, looking at it as a, as a journalist, I think there's kind of a couple of things that are happening simultaneously. One is, um, uh, it's frankly hard to find people to talk about this stuff in a way that like you have where today, where it's easy enough to understand it's the journalist, right? And then to be able to turn around and to tell your average citizen about that um, is a, another set of challenges, right? And to do that in a way where you, where, you know, you meet the, the if it bleeds, it leads threshold, <laughs> right, is difficult, right? This is, this is all very complicated and it's kind of nuanced. Um, and not kind of, it's very nuanced and, and it's not um, the, the sexiest of topics. Um, but I think that there's another thing that's going on that I, that I find to be much more problematic within the, within the journalism industry. And I think it's, a, it's um, something that I think that the first proponents of, of limiting third party cookies and sort of uh, going to a more first party kind of approach. And I think it'd be, be Google and people like Google and Facebook um, have learned to um, capitalize on and manipulate is that journalists, generally speaking, I think really, we have this weird thing where we wanna know everything that's going on, but we also have, I think as a class and a profession um, have kind of come to the, to, to, the, the position that uh, personal uh, privacy is also very important. And, and that um, in these debates, you know, the protection of, of personal uh, privacy is, is paramount for a lot of the reporters that write on this stuff. And right. the, this, this debate has been very much cast in, the, in, in those terms. If the way that the, the, the parameters of the debate are right now are if you support third party cookies, you support less privacy for consumers because that opens the door for really bad actors to step in and do really bad things. And the, that presupposes the silent part of that argument is, and Google and Facebook will never do anything bad, <laughs> right? right. They, they don't say that part, but that's kind of the part that's being assumed in that. And I think that, um, I don't believe that that I don't believe that that's true. I don't think that that's a, a particularly fair framing of the argument. And I think, but it, it it then raises much bigger questions, right? Like if you're not going to frame it that way, if you're not going to assume that that the first party cookie collectors are are going to you know protect people's privacy, then how do you talk about this while still being a hard line supporter of personal privacy, right? How do you, how do you talk about collecting data in a way that is practical? And I think that, that those kind of pressures um, are, are difficult. I also think that, that in general, like there is a cultural bias uh, towards, um, you know, towards Google and Facebook. People trust them implicitly for not necessarily all the, the 
the, the best reasons. I mean, not to even say that they're not necessarily trustworthy. I just think that they've done an excellent job of marketing themselves as being trustworthy, Facebook to a lesser degree, but like certainly Google, you know, so that people don't, um, they just say, well, it's Google, it's fine, right? And gotcha. I think that, I think that, that, that that affects how we report uh, on, on this topic, certainly. Well, I think if, you know, I think you can support privacy. And the more you have the distinction between your offline identity and the digital IDs that are used to help fund the independent publishers, I think the better. I think that, you know, as GDPR, uh, the European General uh, Data Protection Regulation uh, states that there should be a balance of interests between, you know, important things to society, like freedom of expression uh, and freedom of the press, that are balanced against the individual interests around privacy. Now, in the use cases we've mentioned and related to advertising, I don't think those are in conflict, but you could imagine that if privacy were paramount, the newspapers would be prevented from reporting on any bad activities of politicians, which right, exactly. I don't think either one of us would think is a, a great outcome. So there's clearly balancing of interests that go on within journalism for, for very good reasons that I think could also be applied here to say, you know, are we helping to fund this diversity of voices, the freedom of expression, the, uh, you know, cheap or you know, oftentimes free access to content through ad funding of these publishers, or are we pursuing these policies that will somehow undermine that? Well, I think that's a that's a great way to, to, to I think wrap this up. I really do appreciate you um, joining me today, Joshua. This has been so helpful. I I know that like again, as somebody that has tried to figure this out for a while now, I I understand a lot more uh, kind of what's going on, and, and I and I know it's going to help anybody that's listening today um, to, well, to understand this these issues better. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it.